0: Good morning again. If you are new here, I welcome you. It's good to, to see you here. My name is Sergei Marchenko. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, so somewhere our signals got crossed, and the passage that Andrew read actually is not the passage for today. But, see, that's what I'm thinking. How do we make it look as if we had planned it? And so nobody, <laughs> nobody knows. But perhaps the Lord has another purpose for this. But this will give you a teaser, right? Because that's probably the most difficult one in the, in the Abraham story. So we'll deal with that next week. I'll get to read the passage for this week. We're starting a, a new series. Before we, we do that, let me uh, make a couple announcements. Children between eight, uh, t- 2 and 8 are released for Children's Church. You can send them that way. There will be somebody in the foyer to direct them where they need to go. Also, we are starting a new midweek kids program. We're calling it Kids Connection. And next Sunday, after worship, 1 o'clock, here at Chatham, we'll have an informational meeting. You can talk to Ann Menke or Kathy Walton about it. We'll be sharing more about this new ministry and uh, letting you know how you can be involved, what's all going to happen there. We're hoping to have people in place to start about mid-October. So if you have children who are counting on that time, about mid-October, we're hoping to, to get it going. And finally, also we are providing sermon notes. Some of you have requested them over the last few weeks. If it's helpful for you to have an outline in front of you, you're welcome to use sermon notes. There's some in the back right there. If you missed them coming in, because is the first week that I've been doing that, you're welcome to get up and, and get them. All right, so we're starting a new series. And uh, uh, I'd like you to open your Bibles to, to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9. So let me read this first, and then I'll introduce why we're looking at these stories from Genesis. Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, "To your offspring I will give this land." So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on still going toward the Negev. Now we're starting a series of sermons that will take us all the way to Advent time on the life of Abraham. We're looking at the life of one man, and he's not Jesus. Why, right? Why are we going to spend the next two and a half months looking at the life of this one particular person? Well, as you look around and as you think about the religious landscape, even our culture, but certainly the global religious landscape, there are four major religions that all claim Abraham as, as the beginner of their faith. So we're talking about Christianity, of course, but also Islam. We're talking about the Baha'i faith and Judaism. As you read the Bible, you will see that Abraham is important in the Bible. So if you don't care about those other religions, but you care about yours, you will see that Abraham is very important for us. The first 11 chapters of Genesis have to do with these big universal things, right? The flood, creation, the fall of humanity. And then you get to chapter 12, and now it's all about this one guy and one family. God at some point here between 11 and 12 in Genesis says, I'm going to deal with humanity through this one person. Makes a covenant with him. Makes promises to him. Through him the blessing will come to all the families of the earth. One commentator called this the scandal of particularity. The scandal of particularity. Through this one man, now God is going to work his plan for humanity, So we need to understand what this man was like. What happened to him that he became this important person in the history of the world and certainly in the history of our faith? We're going to consider what happens to a man like Abraham when grace breaks in, when God comes into your life, when God just shows up and everything is different now. And Abraham becomes this larger-than-life figure. We're going to look at our own lives as well over the next two and a half months and, and see how we are affected by grace, how we are affected by God entering our lives. What happens to us when grace breaks in? So today we start with the call of Abraham. Grace comes to Abraham in the form of a call. This call from God to leave His country, His people, His family, to go to the land that God will show him at some point, where he will become a great nation and acquire a great name and will become a blessing to other nations. Everything starts with God's call. And everything changes when Abraham accepts this call. Now many of us think, that we can simply add God to our life when it's appropriate, when it's necessary for us. Here's a common scenario. I didn't used to go to church, but then I got married and settled down and then we had children and so we thought we probably should start coming to church now and our children could use some religious instruction and so we started becoming religious It's a common story. It it assumes that there's some sort of a progression, right? That you kind of move forward in your life and you meet these milestones and at some point you say, well, maybe now is a good time to consider religion. Let me say this, that's not at all how it's described in the scriptures. That's not how it happens. The call of God is disruptive to your life. It doesn't add to it. As if you can say, I'm doing well financially, I'm doing well relationally, so now let me fix the religious part of my life. That's not how it happens. In real life, that's not how it happens. You see, you can't add God to whatever else you have. When God comes in, when grace breaks in, it replaces everything you've had before. There is a displacement of your former attachments that has to happen if that call is to take root in your life. Karl Barth, the the Swiss theologian, refers to conversion or this this call of following Jesus that enters into someone's life as the coup d'etat of God. Coup d'etat of God. Always good to throw a French phrase, I feel. But... It's, it's, a, it's a violent, hostile overthrow of the government that happens when God comes into your life. So it's not as if God comes along and says, let me help you along and let me encourage you to go where you're already going. Oh no. God comes in and He says, let's reverse the direction of your life altogether. Where you were going, you're not going anymore. Now you have a totally different destination. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced a a coup, a coup d'etat, in your life. I have, so I'll share that memory with you. It was 1991. As many of you know, I grew up in Ukraine, born and raised there, and so I come home from school, right? I'm, you know, I'm 13 years old. Come home from school, turn on the TV, and every station is broadcasting Swan Lake, the ballet, So no cartoons, no educational programming. It's just Swan Lake on every channel. If you grew up in a a dictatorial kind of a situation, you know that ballet on all channels is not a good sign. Usually that means a coup is in progress, and they don't know what to say. So they're going to put art on TV. And so I'm watching Swan Lake, you know, on that afternoon, and I'm realizing life is never going to be the same from now on. Something major is happening. And of course, within days, Ukraine proclaimed its independence. The economy collapsed. The Soviet Union fell apart. Everything happened rapidly. That's, a, that's an overthrow, a takeover of the government. That's how it happens. It happens quickly, and it changes everything. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what does happen when God comes into your life. It's not adding another dimension, another aspect. It's not enriching your life. There's a complete change. There's a, there's a turnaround. You know, we use words like repentance, right? And conversion. Second birth to describe that. I, those are not gradual, sort of, I'm going to now get going to where I'm going kind of a thing. No. It's a total change. It's, it's an overthrow of, of your government. Whatever mattered to you in the past is now no longer important. Everything changes when grace breaks in. Now, in the West, and please forgive me a little bit of a social commentary here, but in the West, in the affluent West, in the secure West, for many of us, we feel like we could add God to our lives, right? We feel like we deserve a religious expression of some sort if we wanted it. So we come to church, and when our preachers get to passages like Matthew ten thirty-seven through 39, when Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When you come to church in the West and the preacher has that text, there's a lot of hermeneutical gymnastics that happens usually. And we say, that's not at all what Jesus meant. Let me share my learning with you and tell you that in fact Jesus means just the opposite here. It is about family values. It is about self-actualization. We hear sermons like that that are supposed to reassure us that God isn't going to mess with those important parts of your life. Oh no, it's okay, you see. But that's not what Jesus said. That's not what happened to Abraham. That's not what happened to anybody in the Bible. When God comes in, everything changes. Now, I am sensitive to where some of us might be in life, okay? But I am going to be honest and straightforward about this issue. I do think that many of us are pretending and think that God could be added to our lives. We like certain things about God, We like certain things about the church and we're willing to go along with him and with it as long as it doesn't interfere with the things that I really treasure in my heart. We try to combine a religion with all sorts of things, politics and family values and entertainment, right? It's not that unusual to to see in the West the church accommodating to whatever the sensibilities are of the day. Perhaps we need to look at the early Christian church and see how they understood what the call entailed and be confronted from their example as to what it might mean to us. The common slogan of our time is faith, family, freedom. Nicely alliterated. Faith, family, freedom. Do you know what the early slogan of the church was what the early Christians confessed it wasn't like that it wasn't three things it was Jesus is Lord Jesus is Lord let us be confronted with the early Christians understanding of the call of God you see they they preferred to talk more about their Savior than their faith than their religious rights. They were often disowned by their families. So they understood what Jesus meant when he said you must hate your mother and your father. They were persecuted by their own government. They knew what the call to follow Christ entailed. I want us to know too. I want us to see how Scripture portrays this transition when God comes into your life and everything changes. God isn't coming alongside. He's reversing the direction of your life. For us to be truly converted, for us to be truly responding to God's call, we need to see that everything changes when God comes in. So I'm going to deal with this issue today, okay? Please be patient with me, okay? I'll probably say things I shouldn't say, but hear what Scripture says to us today. So our outline is very simple. To understand the meaning of God's call, along with Abraham, we need to first look back at what must be left behind. We need to look back at what must be left behind. Secondly, we must look forward to what lies ahead, to what God promises to us in return. And thirdly, we must look up at the Lord who issues this call. So look back at what we must leave behind, look forward to what lies ahead, and look up at the Lord who calls us. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 12, there's a, there's a word that's missing there. For us, it just in our versions, it says, go. But there's another Hebrew word there, and if we translated it literally, it would say, go for you which is why we don't translate it literally, because it doesn't make sense. Go for you. Now, some of the older translations, I think King James, King James says, get thee out. That's how they get around this. Get thee out. Uh, we can translate it as go you, you personally go, or go for yourself. Now, it's hard to translate it, but the meaning is clear. The call is very personal. You see, Abraham heard from God that he had to go. He had to get out. And so scripture tells us he went as the Lord had told him. There was a personal decision made here. Abraham took it personally. God was speaking to him. And God was telling him, you get out. You go. And so he went. He left. But he was to leave things behind. This personal decision involved rejecting certain things in life. Specifically, God says, leave your country, right? Leave your kindred or your ethnic group, your clan, your tribe, and leave your father's house, leave your family, leave your very identity of who you are, your name, you see. He had to leave all of that to go to a land that God promised to show him at some point. He had to leave. When the call of God comes into your life, it's disruptive, it's destructive. It is supposed to force you to renunciate something, to, uh, to separate from something. Richard Elliott Friedman, who is a, commentary, a Jewish commentary on the Torah, he says that the point of this order, country, kindred, family, is not geographical, right? Because once you leave your country, you've left your ethnic group already. He's saying it's emotional, the order is emotional. The three steps are arranged in ascending order of difficulty for Abraham. It's hard to leave your country. It's harder to leave your clan, your tribe, your group, your community. And it's even harder to leave your family, to leave your immediate family. Abraham is told to leave the security of his country. And then he's told to leave the significance of of his people, and finally to leave the identity of his family. You see how it's gradually becoming more and more difficult. But that's what the call does. When, when God calls you, when Jesus calls you to follow him, that's exactly what needs to happen. We need to leave, we need to get out. We need to leave things behind. So let's look at these categories and see if we can apply them a little bit. Abraham was called out of his native Ur of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia. Uh, For the rest of his life, he was a wanderer, a nomad. Leaving the place where he had rights, right? Where he knew all the cultural references, where he knew how things worked because he grew up there. That's very difficult. That's very difficult to do that. If you're not from here and you've come here from somewhere else, you know that's a big adjustment, If you haven't experienced that move, that major move from one country to another, imagine just functioning without your driver's license. You feel scared when you don't have your driver's license on you, don't you? Because you don't know what's going to happen. How are you going to prove that you're from here, that you have rights? What if you get pulled over? So that security of belonging to a culture, to a place, to a land, where you know how things work, Giving that up is, is very, very difficult. Now, please, again, I'm going to ask for your forgiveness several times today is because I don't want you to feel that I'm taking this lightly. I'm not taking it lightly. But I am a preacher of the gospel, and I have to be open about these things. I'm not picking on America, okay? So please forgive this foreigner's audacity to speak to you about your country. But American values are not Christian values. To be an American is not to be a Christian. When God calls you, we are to leave the security that's provided for us by the Constitution of the United States and by the might of the military of this country. That should no longer be your security. I enjoy living here. There are many blessings. There are many good things about being an American and living here And living here in the great state of Missouri. I figured I'd bring you in a little bit (laughs) here. But when the call comes, God is telling us to get out. You no longer hold on to those things, those things no longer define how secure you might feel. You see, when you become a Christian, You don't stop being American. No, you don't. I mean, national identity still matters. But American can no longer come before Christian. You see, it has to come second. Yes, be patriotic is good, but only second to your commitment to Christ and only to the degree that it fits with your commitment to Christ. You see, I've been here long enough to know that for many believers here, there is some confusion between being American and being Christian. There should be no confusion. Those are two separate things. And when God calls you to be a Christian, He calls you not to trust in the security of your country any longer. Is it hard? Yeah. The call is disruptive. And I know for some of you it's harder than for for the rest of us. We all have made certain attachments in our prior life before Christ. And when the call comes, those have to be disrupted. Those have to be exposed. Now secondly, Abraham did and we must also leave our kindred or particular group of people we identify with. Uh, our ethnicity, for example. Our attachment to a community of people. Uh, it gives us significance. It gives us a, a place, a, a way to belong. This is how it often works. My group is superior to other groups, which is why I am part of this group and not that group. And because I'm part of this superior group, I am more important than other people. This group gives me value, it gives me worth, it gives me significance. Now, we certainly see that play out along racial lines, don't we? Along ethnic lines, but it doesn't have to be just that. I mean, it certainly is that, but it doesn't have to be. It could play out along all sorts of lines. You can you can be part of a professional group. You can be a doctor or a teacher and feel that this is my tribe. You see, this is where I belong. This is why I'm important, because I'm part of this group. You could be a recycler or, or, or a vegan. I mean, you can have a certain breed of dog. I mean, it doesn't have to be anything of of ultimate significance, but it's somewhere where you belong, that's your tribe, and you feel that that's why you are significant. It could even be the cardinal nation. Now I'm really offending some people, aren't I? But you see, we can find that group, we would say, this is where I belong. When the call of God comes into your life, God says, get thee out. That's no longer where your significance comes from. Doesn't mean you have to stop doing that necessarily. Could mean that. But your perspective has to change completely. Where you used to derive significance now cannot provide that significance anymore. When God calls Abraham, he demands that Abraham separate from his tribe. So, when grace comes to us, we too cannot remain captive to our clan when we are converted. Now, thirdly, God also tells Abraham to leave his father's house. So, it's becoming increasingly more painful as we move through this emotional progression. So, his family, at the end of Genesis 11, uh, we read that Terah, Abraham's father, has left. Mesopotamia, the Ur of the Chaldeans, along with Abraham and Lot and a bunch of other people. I'm assuming that's when the call came. And so Abraham was obedient and he went and he brought his family with him. But then they came to Haran and his dad said, I think we're going to stop here. And so they stopped halfway. And Abraham had a choice to make. And so he journeyed on. Abraham and Lot, and Lot and Abraham will separate later, by the way, but at this point, they're together and they're moving on. They're pursuing God's call, even though they're leaving behind Terah, Abraham's father. Now, why is it that Terah, who also kind of heard that call, right, was at least part of that group, stopped halfway? He didn't journey all the way to Canaan. He stopped in Haran. Why? Well, we can have a pretty good, make a pretty good guess. In Joshua 24 verse 2. Joshua 24, verse 2. It says, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. That's the Ur of the Chaldeans. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they served other gods. They served other gods. Abraham is not this nice moral religious person that God is moving along in the process. Oh no, he's an idolater. It comes from a heathen pagan family that worships other gods. And so they come from Ur. And Ur was a place of, of moon worship. In fact, in fact Terah means moon. Even the names of, of Sere and Milca, the, the the wives here, are likely connected with the worship of the moon god. Now, do you know where another center for moon worship, was? It was in Haran. Isn't that interesting that Terah goes from one place of idolatry to another and stays there? He never responded to the call, you see. But Abraham is now faced with this decision. Am I going to pursue God's call and leave my family behind? Or am I going to stay here and remain an idolater like my dad? He keeps going. He journeys on. He responds to this very personal call to get himself out of that idolatrous family and continue to pursue God's call towards Canaan. God tells Abraham, even if your family is not willing to follow me, you do it. Answering God's call means separating in some way from your family. This attachment to family must be broken because the call of God is intensely personal. Now we know from many stories about Christian converts in Muslim and Hindu contexts that 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 is their experience. They are disowned immediately by their families. Often there is a threat of physical violence on them. So they know when they are responding to Christ's call, they are rejecting at least part of their heritage, part of their family. We don't often think of those terms here in the West, but it's just as true. It may not be as, a, as dramatic of a break, but it's still true. You're making a personal decision. Now, it works the other way. Let's say you come from a Christian family, right? And you listen to me say you have to break from your family, right? And you say, well, why? They're a Christian family, well, you break from them in terms of you yourself making a decision for yourself. Just because they're Christians doesn't mean you are. So the call is still personal for you, whatever your family is, whatever they believe, to make that decision for yourself. Just like we were praying for Lucy and Elliot. They come from Christian homes. That, that is a big blessing. But we want them to make that decision for themselves. We want them to respond to the call of God on their lives and at some point break from their families and say, I will follow Jesus even if my parents won't. Being separated from your family, of course, is very difficult. So much of who we are comes from our families, right? When you meet someone for the first time and you introduce yourself, what do you tell them? Tell them your name, right? Where's your name come from? Somebody gave you that name unless you're one of those people that came up with a totally different name in your 20s and just decided to go by that, most of us, we kind of stick with what our parents gave us, whether we like it or not. It's part of who we are. There's an identity that's wrapped up in how our, our family saw us, how our parents saw us. Your last name is the last name of your dad or your mom. Your first name was carefully chosen for you. And so that, that break from your family gets at the very core of who you are, your own identity. God tells Abraham, I will, I will give you a great name, right? That's a new identity breaking in. Now you can no longer go by what your family believes, how they do things. You have to make the decision to pursue God's call for yourself. Okay, so you might be feeling a little uncomfortable at this point. I am feeling a little uncomfortable at this point. I've talked about you forsaking your country and your family and your ethnic and racial groups and your recycling clubs and all sorts of things. Now, we're supposed to be uncomfortable. The gospel is supposed to disrupt our lives. Of course it's supposed to do that. And if we feel comfortable in the presence of Jesus who tells us to die to ourselves and live for Him, we're not reading Him right. We're not listening to his call. There's a very good reason why God is mentioning those three things to Abraham as ways for them to separate himself from the old life, the old attachments. There's a connection between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 that is often overlooked. What happened in Genesis 11? What's the big story? They were building a tower. Remember that? The Tower of Babel? They got together... And here's what they said. This is Genesis 11.4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Does that sound familiar? Those are the same categories that God is addressing with Abraham. When God calls Abraham, He calls him to reject all the same things that were pursued by the builders of the Tower of Babel. See, they too wanted security. They wanted to build a city, a land, our own place, you see. They wanted significance. They wanted to stay together, not be dispersed. They wanted identity. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted all those things apart from God, who's the only one who can actually give us These things. They wanted security, significance, identity, glory apart from God. Is family bad? No. Family is great. Is community bad? No. Is it wrong to be patriotic? Nothing wrong with that. But your identity should not come from your family. Your security should not come from your country, and your significance should not come from your community. When it happens for us, when we derive those things from our family, our country, and our community, we are no better than Tara, worshiping the moon god, or the builders of the tower, who are saying, we can do that without God. I can feel significant apart from God. I can feel secure apart from God. I can be myself authentically apart from God. We too worship those same idols of family and country and clan and many times in our churches. The problem is that our ambition to achieve these things can never be fulfilled through nationalism, tribalism, or family values. Now think about that as you hear people campaigning for office. What are they offering? They're offering what they cannot give you. Those things do not reside in nationalism, tribalism, and family values. Just as certainly as the Tower of Babel tumbled down, we too will be thrown into insecurity, into insignificance, and into confusion. But before the tower crashes in our lives, God comes in, and God calls you out. Do you see that God isn't just a cruel God who says, well, I don't want you to be with your family. I don't want you to feel good about your country. I don't want you to be an authentic you the way your parents raised you. God is saying, this is all headed to destruction. I'm going to rescue you before it happens. In itself, God's call to leave is grace. It's mercy. We are so limited in our vision of reality in our world, and we think, if I just get a good spouse, if my children are doing well, if my country is strong... If my tribe is doing good, then I am okay. And God says, this is so temporary. God can foresee an eternal catastrophe you're headed to. And so He intervenes. He disrupts. Why? To save us and to bless us. You see, there's a good design behind it. God isn't playing with you. He isn't checking your level of commitment. He's intervening because you're headed towards death. The tower is going to fall. And so God is coming in and saying, let me snatch you before that happens. Let me call you out, which is why we have to leave. We have to get out. You can't remain with the same attachments that you start with as a Christian. Now, I need to move on But let me encourage you to wrestle with this. We don't all have the same issues. Some of us are much more patriotic than others. Some of us are much more political than others. Some of us are much more attached to our relatives than others. But all of us are dealing with those issues. And so please look at your life. I'm looking at my life as well. And saying, am I leaving? Is there a break? Is there a disruption from those attachments? Like Abraham, have I left my country? Have I left my kindred? Have I left my family? Has there been a hostile takeover of my idols in my heart? Can I describe my conversion and my faith as a coup d'etat of God? That's the question. Are you simply adding God to your other things, and He becomes one of the idols? Or is he replacing all of your idols and becomes the only true God in your life? Now, we leave that behind, but we look forward to something. We can never stop at the negative in a Christian sermon, you see, because we are gospel people and there is always good news. And so if we're leaving all of that behind and we understand the reason, maybe even, for leaving that because it's, it's not going to give us what we're after, What is God actually offering to us? What do we have to look forward as we leave something behind and now we turn forward and we move forward as a response to God's call? Well, this is what God tells Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When God calls us, He promises to give us something much better than anything we might be leaving behind. Now these promises to Abraham, they're very specific. And they mirror the sacrifices that are demanded of him. Abraham is to leave his country, his tribe, and his family. But God will give him a land, right? Country. He'll make of him a great nation, a new kindred. And he will make his name great, a new identity. All these promises are now based in God Himself, not in the temporary things of life, but in God Himself. God promises to become Abraham's security. He's saying, I will be that for you. He will bless those who bless Abraham. God is basically saying, I'm with you all the way. Whoever blesses you, I will bless them. Whoever curses you, I'll curse them. We're in it together. You want security? The God of the universe is always going to be on your side. That's amazing. This promise is amazing. God promises significance to Abraham. He will make Abraham a blessing to the nations. Not not just your kindred, but to the nations. The whole world is going to be blessed through you. And then he promises a new identity to Abraham as one called by God in relationship with him. I'd like us to see what's happening here. God is redirecting all those ambitions that had certain attachments. Now He's redirecting all of them toward Himself. Now God knows that we want security in a place, that we want significance of a people, of a group, that we want glory of a name. And so when He calls us to Himself, He does not say, stop wanting it. No, He doesn't say that. He made us that way, you see. He made us to want security, to want significance, to want authenticity and identity. In fact, Adam was meant to live in the garden, a place, with Eve and community. And God himself named him. You see that the builders of the tower were only half wrong. Now, catastrophically half wrong, but half wrong. They were looking for the right things, but they were looking for them apart from God. But the ambitions are right. The impulses are right. We are to look for security and significance and identity. And so when you feel safe in your house, it's right. When you feel compelled to get up, when the national anthem is played, that's right. When you, when you enjoy being with friends and, and family, that's right. Friends, even our fascination with celebrities is in some way an echo from the garden. Because we long for these things that God has placed in our hearts And when we come to God, he disrupts all our prior attempts to seek and find them because we can't find them. But he replaces them with new things all found in himself. When God calls, he promises to fulfill the desires of our hearts. In his call, he promises to give us what the builders of the tower wanted to get but couldn't. Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a famous journalist in Britain and got converted later in life, describes his conversion to Christ, which culminated in his joining a church. And the way he describes it, he's using this kind of language because that's what it feels like to us. He talks about his conversion as a sense of homecoming, of picking up the threads of a lost life of responding to a bell that had long been ringing, of taking a place at a table that had long been vacant. Coming to Christ with all the disruptions that it necessarily must bring into your life is like coming home. It is like finding what you've been looking for. You said, I was, I was hoping to get security in my country. Now I can have true security in God. I was hoping to feel significant by belonging to this group, but now I feel significant with God. I was hoping to figure out who I am based on what my parents taught me and how they brought me up. But now I know who I really am in God. That's what happens when the call comes into your life. It disrupts, yes, but it gives you all of those things that you were made to have. The call separates us from those false things and gives us true things. We, we leave behind what we're supposed to leave behind and we look forward to something that is that is ours by our birthright in Jesus. Now there's there's a passage in this text that describes it beautifully. Abraham built altars but he pitched his tent. Right? What do you think he thought was permanent in his life? It wasn't his house. It was God. God was the reality. God was what gave him significance and security and identity. Everything else was there and was to be enjoyed, but ultimately didn't have the same weight. It wasn't permanent like God was. See, this life and response to God's gracious call paradoxically involves both uncertainty, because you often don't know where you're going, and certainty, because you know who you're going with, right? We leave behind what we have been taught to trust only to embrace. A promise. What does God tell Abraham? Go to the land, I will show you. Leave everything. Go somewhere, I will tell you later where. Abraham goes. There's a lot of uncertainty in his life. He doesn't know where he's going, really. And yet, there's certainty because he knows God has promised in this land to him and surely God will keep his promise. Now, this is my illustration of how that uncertainty and certainty work together in the Christian's life. And it's very often it happens. It comes from, from my daughters. My youngest, Evangeline, she had three extra weeks of summer break this year. So the three older sisters were in school and she was forced to stay at home and she loves school. She's my one kid that just loves school. And so she would stay behind And every day we would try to do something with her to get her out of the house somehow because she gets bored and she she gets angry that she's not in school. And so we try to go do something with her. So I would tell her, Evangeline, get thee out. Leave your house, leave your room, and leave your toys, and I will take you to the land that I will show you. (laughs) And so we'd get in the van. She has no idea where we're going. Sometimes I showed her the land of Walmart. <laughs> Other times it was HowderShell Park. But she knew she was going with me. And there was a relational certainty. She knew who was taking her somewhere. So she was okay not knowing actually where we were going. Isn't that how it works with God? We don't know where God is going to lead us. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow with my family or my country or my tribe. But I know that God has promised these things to me, that He's promised significance, He's promised security, He's promised a new identity as a called one of God. And because He is the one who promised, I can trust Him that it will happen. And I can have certainty relationally with Him, even in the midst of the most terrible crisis. In life, I'm not making it sound as if it's easy, oh no, but it's true. Now finally, we must look up at the one who issues this disruptive and yet incredibly fulfilling call. One commentator says, The particularity of Abraham, he matters for the sake of the whole world, prepares us, For the claim that the salvation of all rests on another, on the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we're starting in Genesis 12, we're starting to realize that there's one man through whom God will work for the blessings of the world. And that makes us think of Jesus, another man through whom salvation is going to come to all the families of the world. The call of Abraham ultimately makes sense And it's accepted and it's issued because of another call. The call that was issued a long time before Abraham and it wasn't fulfilled until long after Abraham was dead. That call was issued when the father called the son to leave his country, to leave his kindred, and his father's house. Jesus was called in a very disruptive way also. Jesus was called to be born as a human baby in Bethlehem, to grow up in a human family, to belong to a clan, to live in the land promised to Abraham. His family rejected him. Do you remember that? When... People in his family would say, he's crazy. Don't go listening to him. He's crazy. He's mad. Jesus felt the disruption of the call in his own family. In the end of his life, he had no security of a home. Son of Man had no place to lay his head. His clan, his community of disciples, his group abandoned him One of them betrayed him. He was arrested by the military of his country, his empire. He was sentenced by the judicial system of his land, the leaders of his country. He was crucified, though there was no evidence that he had committed any crime. He was failed by his country. Now Jesus did all of that so that He could share the glory of the Father with us, so that He can share the kingdom of God with us, so that we could be united with others to become His people, and so that He can give us a new name written in the book of life. Why did Jesus go through all that disruption? All that destruction. Why did He do that? So He could call us into the security, significance, and self-worth of being part of God and God's family. That's why He did it. And that is who calls us to follow Him today. What people could not do by erecting a tower, God did by erecting a cross. And so now, that's who calls us. Jesus can call us into this uncertainty. He can call us to disrupt all our attachments and trust only Him. He can issue this call because He Himself received that call and was disrupted and died and rose for us. Because He answered His call, we are to answer ours. We're going to do that physically by coming to the table. This is a visible expression of walking towards God, of leaving something behind and looking forward to what He has promised to us. Communion is not empty. Communion is a a reenactment of what God has done for us. It's a renewal of a covenant. If you are a believer, if you heard His call, and responded to His call, you now come to the table. You come to the table rejoicing that whatever has been taken away from you has only been done so to give you something better. That whatever you have in God is a ton better than anything you lost for Him. And so you get up. If you're able, you get up. If you're not able, somebody's going to bring the elements to you but spiritually we are leaving the security of our country and the significance of our kindred and the identity of our family. And we're moving forward, we're walking to the table only to embrace again the security, significance, and identity in God, the Father of our Lord Jesus who died and rose for us. If you're not a believer, please don't do it for the sake of a ritual. This is your time to consider whether God is calling you And if He is, how are you going to respond to that? So let me pray, and then as we sing, we'll come and take communion. You can take it right here. You can bring it to your seats and take it there. Our Father, we praise You that You are a God who is not afraid to disrupt our lives when You see that we are headed towards destruction. You are the kind of God that loves us enough to show us mercy when we don't know what's going on. And so grace breaks in, grace disrupts, grace makes us renounce and reject all our attempts at finding significance, security, and identity apart from you. We are so thankful that you do that. So within that, we thank you for all the trials of our lives where our idols are exposed where we are forced to look to You for help and can no longer lean on our idols. Lord, we are thankful for Jesus who answered the call and sacrificed Himself for us so when the call comes to us, we can respond joyfully, knowing we can trust the One who calls us. Lord, I ask for those of us that that need to come to Jesus for the very first time. Would you open our hearts to see who Jesus is, what He's done for us, and to respond to His call. For those of us that are already believers, we pray that you would correct us. There may be something that needs to be exposed in our lives. And for others, we need to be encouraged to pursue you with a greater passion, to a greater degree. Lord, do all of that for the sake of your Son. Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup was the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do that as we sing.